Hello. Hi. Hi, my name's Johnny. I didn't lose a bet or anything. I like this hat. Now that we know each other a little better, welcome to the Wellington Water Cooler. Uh, it's the Wellington Water Cooler for the month of July, I believe. Um, and the Water Cooler, of course, is every month people will come up here and they will discuss things. They will talk, they will tell stories around a certain theme. All right? This also happens in Auckland. It happens here as well. Until recently, it was hosted by someone called Alice Bryan. But she's not here. Yeah. She moved away. And uh, she, and she uh, gave the reins to someone called Jen O'Sullivan. Yeah. And she's away. <laughs> this is how far down the totem pole your host is this evening. I would like you to adjust your expectations accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know there's a story about the hat, but that's for another water cooler. No, I've done two already. I've done two water coolers. The first one was really good, and the second one was shithouse. So that's why tonight we only got people who've never done it before. They're all going to bring their A game, and they are going to be telling you stories around uh, the theme of Reboot. Reboot is the theme for this week, which as far as I can tell is what happens when you turn your computer off and then you turn it back on again and it's got an all-female cast. <laughs> it was the one joke I wrote for this evening. Thank you for recognising it. It's technically a joke. Um, this, is, this, is the, um, this is maybe the most reboot year Ever. I mean, this week even is probably the most reboot week there's ever been. There's the, obviously the big Ghostbusters reboot is coming out, and there's uh, Pokemon Go has, has just launched. Uh, and Pokemon Go, as far as I can tell, is a reboot of that movie uh, They Live, where everyone gets these <laughs> devices that allow them to see these horrible creatures who have always been amongst us but only a few of you can now pick them out and catch them. Is anyone here playing uh, Pokemon Go currently? Yeah. All right, okay. Are there any, are there any poke, Pokemons here? I caught some downstairs. You caught some downstairs. Do they come up three floors? Can you have a look, please? Okay, is, it, is, anyone, is anyone just shielding their phone from currently playing an actual game of Pokemon Go? At the moment, I met someone last night. I was talking to someone, and he said, "I'm level ten, and he was wearing a cape." I don't, I don't know if those things are related, but they're they're congruent. Um, how's it going? Are there any any Pokemon's up here? All right, all right. This is good theater. Um, is it? Would you say it was uh, rebooting? No. All right. Shall we go? Shall we go? Shall we, while you, while you, we'll, we'll check in with you during the, during the show. Oh, hang on. There are four Zubats nearby. What's nearby mean? Um, I would have to walk some paces in a certain direction, which I do not know what that is, to find them. Are they going to be this high? They're, I mean, they're bats. They can come up here. That was pretty cool. In this room? Downstairs. 
downstairs, right? You caught one downstairs. But nothing, but there's nothing right here. I'm really creeped out that there are all these things and you don't know they're there. <laughs> okay. Quite seriously, we'll check back in with you after every speaker to see if you need to walk around a little bit just to catch one. As long as you're not too disruptive, that's fine. Okay? All right, good. All right, that's enough of that. Are you ready for your first speaker of the evening, everybody? Okay. Well, please welcome Chris Bartley. Um, so, hey guys, uh, I'm Chris, and I am currently the baker and owner of Sweet Release Cakes and Treats. Um, have you guys heard about us? <laughs> um, so, I actually spent most of my career, actually about 10 years in IT, and um, in IT, like in terms of IT, if you ever had to reboot a computer, it normally meant bad news. Um, and in IT, we always encountered people that were um, getting the blue screen of death and we'd find out that they'd actually been forcefully restarting the computer without telling us for many like weeks or months sometimes. Um, and looking back to the journey I've been um, through to go to where I am now with Sweet Release, it's been a bit of a reboot for me. Um, so basically, in my mid-twenties, I was a telco manager in Christchurch, and I was the hardcore party girl, like party Wednesday for school, you know, students' nights, and then Thursdays for single ladies' nights, and then Friday, <laughs> Friday because it was Friday, and then um, Saturday because it was Saturday, and then Sunday I'd just crash really hard, and it'd be, you know, the, the mid-twenties thing to do, to be hungover, and... Um, and maybe have some, some more drinks with my friends. Um, one day, I just got really, really sick. And, um, yeah, I, was just, I just got so sick, I'd stay in bed. And uh, then the next day, I'd feel better, so I'd go to work. And then the next day, I'd feel shit, so I'd go back home. And this went on for about a couple of weeks. Um, and so I went to see the doctor, and they said, um, you know, what changes have you made with your life? And I said, oh, I'm just doing everything. Maybe I'm just running down, you know, the good old... I was hoping he was just going to say, take some Panadol and go home. And he's like, oh, um, you look like you've lost a little bit of weight. And I was like, yeah, I have. So he put me on the scales and I had lost 12 kgs in like two months. And <laughs> he was like, have you been exercising lots? Have you been eating really well? And I was like, no, like, um, you know, I'm kind of like... I was a KFC girl with all the partying and stuff and... I actually, like, I laughed really hard in his face when he asked me that. Because I, so I was like, no, that's, that's not me. I don't exercise and I don't eat healthy. Um, I'm in my mid-twenties, who cares? And he was like, well, you know, 12 kgs is a lot to lose in two months. There's got to be something going on. So he, um, he immediately printed out this blood test um, thing for me to go to. And he said, I want you to go there straight after this. And so I did that. And then... Um, Two days later, um, I got the results and they were like, he was like, oh, you're going to have to come in, we're going to have to talk to you. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is going to, what the hell's the results? And he's like, um, we found the results. No, I feel like I'm hyping this up. Um, <laughs> I had, a, basically I was going through a thyroid storm. I don't know if you guys know anyone with thyroid issues. 
Um, but basically a thyroid storm is when your heart rate is going like 110 beats per minute just sitting still. Um, and it's when your body temperature doesn't know what to do with itself. So you could be really, really cold one day and you could be really, really hot the next like minute. And I was having like hot flushes and they were like, well, this can't be menopause. And, and you know, so they were like, this, you know, you're, you're way off the charts basically. And um, I was having insomnia and I thought the insomnia thing was really cool because, again, it fitted in really well with my party lifestyle. I could party all night and I thought it was just, just something like superpower that I had and um, he's like you know you, you haven't been sleeping well and I was like yeah that's because I'm always out and um, yeah and he was basically like you have to slow down and we're gonna have to get you fixed um, so he put me on some medication and I had to go on some I had to go on heart medication I had to go on thyroid medication to fight off the hormones that were attacking my thyroid and then I had to go for more lab testing, like I was sent through the CT scan and I did like the whole shebang. And um, yeah, and they found out that I had my, my antibodies is a thousand times more than a normal person. So for every one antibody you guys have, I have a thousand. Um, and basically what that was causing to do was causing my whole body to go hyper. So um, my, yeah, so it's attacking my thyroid and my thyroid was just just going all over the place and I was getting really confused and like I'd be really really starving one minute and then I'd like be throwing up the next day and not be able to keep anything down for a few days so of course during this time I'm really stubborn um, I keep trying to go to work and I'd go to work and I'd, I wouldn't have any sleep and I could go to work and I could get my job done properly. Like, I thought I was fully functional. And I honestly thought, like, this was a really cool, like, really cool mutation to have to, to be able to not go to sleep, like, to watch all the movies you wanted to watch, um, to do all the work you needed to do throughout the night, to catch up with friends overseas and all that stuff. And, um, and then go to work the next day with no sleep and have, you know, stuff done. And um, we had this thing called Manager of the Month, and I was constantly getting manager of the month. I was like, I felt like I was being really productive with all the awake time that I had. Um, so of course, doing that to your body will cause you to crash. So um, I crashed really, really hard one day and that just basically left me bedridden for about eight months. And um, yeah, and so again, me being really stubborn, I don't, I don't like things still. Like, can you imagine, like, a really hardcore party girl, like, workaholic, just being told to sit still, and it was horrible. So um, so I did that, and I was at home all day, all night, and I was on my medication. Um, I don't even remember a lot of the eight months, to be honest. And so once the medication finally started kicking in, about two months into it, um, I started having good days and then I would try to go to work again and then my work was actually like, look, you just relax, you need to get better, um, you're going to have your job for you no matter how long this takes. And I said, it's been like three months now, like I can't, I can't expect you guys to not hire someone else to replace me. And they're like, no, we want you, like, you know, you, you do the job really well and the job's here for you, so you go home and get better. And so they were basically like, we are not accepting you back into work until we get a doctor's certificate to say you're good to go. So I thought that was really nice, and that was a really nice um, relief for me because um, 
every morning I would wake up and I'd be like, oh, do I call in sick today or do I stay at home? And I'd always want to go to work because I was just so bored at home. Um, so, yeah, and so I just basically was like, okay, now I have to stay at home. And I don't like, I was like to the doctors, how long is this going to take? And they were basically like this, you know, the medication can take years for people to feel normal and et cetera. And I was like, holy crap, they're not going to hold my job for a few years. <laughs> and um, so I started eventually getting better and... Of course, when I had a good day, I wasn't allowed to go to work. So, you know, I played all the games. I played all the PlayStation games. I, I did everything I wanted to do, and I was kind of like, what do I do with myself? And um, one day I was having one of my really starving moments, like, you know, that Hulk kind of angry, like, hungry. Um, and so I was like, shit, we don't have any cookies. And um, <laughs> I was so angry because, like, obviously I'd been left out of the loop with the, sh the whole shopping and the grocery stuff because I was just in bed. And I was like, damn it, he didn't get me any <laughs> cookies. And um, so I thought, okay, you know what, I'm going to make my own cookies. And um, so I Googled a recipe for cookies, and I literally picked the first one <laughs> that came up. And um, luckily we had everything at home. And I remember to this day, and this is a story I share with everyone in regards to how I started with baking, um, like that I didn't know what a baking soda looks like. So, you know, you, you see the recipe and it tells you what you need. And um, it said, you know, one teaspoon of baking soda. And I was like, what the fuck is a baking soda? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and I was like, uh, is this a can of liquid? <laughs> And honestly, I spent quite a while going through the pantry and going through the fridge trying to figure out if this was in liquid form or powder. <laughs> and um, of course, I was still like not 100% there either. So um, it took me a really long time to figure out what it was. And it, so my first ever cookies I ever baked um, took me four hours. <laughs> yeah. And because, you know, I was taking my time, so I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Um, so... Yeah, I was moving at a really, really slow pace. And so I finally got the cookies made. And um, when I took them out of the oven, I had two dozen cookies. Um, and that was also because I didn't understand recipes. <laughs> I didn't understand how much, you know, it would create, etc. So I was like, I can't eat this all. And um, so I, my friends at this time had been coming to my house to visit me. And I invited one of my best friends over and I excitedly told her I made some cookies. And um, so she brought her toddler with her and they ate the cookies and they were like, oh, this is so great. And I was like, of course, you have to say that, like, you're my best friend. Um, and then her toddler really loved it. And so I was like, okay, that's, that's the right approval because kids won't lie to you. And um, yeah, and I just felt like, I felt like I'd accomplished something in the last few months of being bedridden. So I really enjoyed baking and um, whenever during the whole eight months of being stuck at home, I, I just continued baking on my good days. I'd have, you know, one or two a week, and then that slowly increased, and I just kept on baking. I, I made sure that when I felt good, I would get up out of bed and sort of, like, feeling sorry for myself. Um, I'd get up, and I'd bake, and I'd you know, invite my friends, and it was also a really good excuse for them to come over. Um, so, yeah, then I got better, and the doctors was like, yep, you can go back to work. So off to work I went with my little certificate. And I was like, here you go, I'm allowed to be here. And um, yeah, and they were just like, sweet, you know, welcome back. And everyone was so welcoming um, when I came back as well. And I was just going through the motions as I was before. Um, I obviously didn't go back to my party life straight away. 
I um, went back to work for about two or three months and then I kind of decided, you know what, like after all the Christchurch earthquakes and stuff like that, I was like, this, why am I here? Like this, I'm not really doing much with my life um, and I haven't left Christchurch since I moved there when I was nine. And so I was like, I, I loved going to Wellington, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go live in Wellington. Like I literally decided on a Saturday, I'm going to Wellington. And then on Monday, I quit my job. <laughs> um, and and they because I was a manager, um, I had a quite a high position in the telco company. They said, we're putting you on garden leave because you've got too much access to you know screw everything around if you wanted to. And I was like, sweet, so I'm gonna get paid for four weeks and not have to work. And um, so, yeah, I started planning on moving to Wellington and I was really, really lucky. Um, and I guess also because my friends knew of my situation, they were all very supportive of what I wanted to do next. Um, so I had a friend in Wellington. Um, I knew two people in Wellington and um, one of them offered me a bed in her house um, to stay at until I found my own place. And the other one offered to take me around and show me around and, you know, introduce me to some people, etc. So um, Saturday, decided. Monday, I quit my job. Uh, Wednesday, I had a farewell party. <laughs> and all my friends were really confused. They were like, we thought you were bluffing, like, you know, because you just... People say shit and they never do it. So um, they, they were like, OK, you're really going to Wellington. I was like, yeah, I've left my job. And, um, and then it just happened to be like this amazing coincidence that one of my Christchurch friends who was also moving to Wellington uh, was doing a road trip from Christchurch to Wellington on a Friday. So I was like, you know what? Yep, I'm coming with you. And so, yeah, I jumped in her car with like literally a box of clothes. And I was like, you know what? I'll just buy everything in Wellington. Um, so yeah, I went on a road trip with her, arrived here on a Friday. Um, told my other friend that um, I was coming and, you know, he needs to take me places. And, um, yeah, I arrived and literally with just, like, an hour of unpacking, he came to my new place <coughs> and we went to a party and my party girl lifestyle started again. Um, and during during my um, process of moving to Wellington, I, had, I was having all these regular checks with my specialist and he was like, you know, I've got really great news for you. You're actually um, doing really well and your thyroid's functioning on its own um, and it's your, th your Graves issues is not, is not attacking anymore. So um, we're going to start weeding you off your medication. And I thought, that's awesome. Like, I, you know, this, this is going to be an amazing new adventure for me. So I never went back into the kitchen because I had no time. I was, you know, I had to go see everything in Wellington and meet everybody. And I, um, my boyfriend, I actually met on my second night in Wellington. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I went back to being the party girl. Um, I got a job and, you know, I applied for this job at a law firm as an their IT consultant and I got it with, you know, I started literally the next day. So I was pretty comfortable and I was just doing me and... Um, a year of comfort really bit me in the ass. Um, I basically got really sick again. And so the specialist, I, I found a new specialist in Wellington and they were basically like, okay, you had a 50% chance to not get sick again and that 50% chance could have happened at any time of your life. And I was like, that's really not fair. Like, that's, I've only had one year of freedom. And he was like, well, we're just going to have to do something drastic to fix you. And so... Um, had two options. One was to have radiation um, therapy, and the second one was to just 
like literally cut open my throat and take it out. Um, so I was put back on all the heart meds. I was put on all the, I remember having bottles and bottles by my bedside that I had to take every morning. Um, I went through that and they were basically like, all right, we, we have to ship this radiation pill from like Korea. So just, you know, stay in bed and we'll get you a date and we'll sort it out. And so the date came and, um, and during that time I thought, oh shit, like I, I feel really depressed and I feel, I just felt really shit because I was like, how could I have come back full circle into this position of being really sick again? And um, I was like, you know what, last time I got sick, I really enjoyed those cookies I made. So I was like, I'm going to start baking again. And so I continued baking while I was waiting for my date. And then I got the date, um, and basically the conditions of that was I had to be in isolation for a few weeks with no human contact. Like, I literally could not have people like 10 metres around me. And so um, I was really fortunate I had a house all to myself because um, my boyfriend went to Europe. And, um, yeah, and so before he left and... While I was in isolation, I literally had kgs and kgs of flour, sugar, all of that, knowing that if I felt good during the time, because they were basically like, we don't know how you're going to react to this. Um, we don't know if you're going to be sick or if you're going to feel better. And, you know, they were, I was like, fine, that's all right. I'm going to bake. And so, um, yeah, so during the few weeks I was by myself, um, I obviously Skyped with my friends, spoke to people online, but it's just so different not having like people near you and not having people like accidentally bump into you. It's just like the weirdest feeling to not be touched at all. Um, so yeah, I just kept, like baking really kept me company um, during those times. And I was such a big fan of YouTube tutorials. So, um, you know, I was like, shit, I don't even know what baking soda looks like. What else don't I know? <laughs> um, and so yeah, I literally was based like, Googling the basics, how do you measure flour? Like, what's the best method? And uh, I started from scratch, and I was like, fuck it, I don't have anywhere to go. I'm going to do this. And um, so, yeah, I did that for a few weeks. And then once I got that all clear, um, me being me, on my first outing, I went out and I applied for a job. <laughs> um, and I got the job on the spot, which I was really stoked about, because I was, I was like, yay, human contact. And, um, and of course during the radiation treatment, I wasn't allowed to feed anybody because it was radioactive and I wasn't even allowed to have people near me. So um, a lot of the food went to the rubbish. And, um, but, you know, I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, guys, I know how to read a recipe. So, um, so I went to my new job and I was like, hey, I love baking. And I was, like, feeding them, like, nearly every day going, I made cookies, I made brownies, I made, you know, I, I wanted to try this new thing. And so, yeah, that happened, and um, I went back to IT, and I was working for about six months in IT, and there was a disaster in the Philippines, I'm, I'm Filipino, um, there was a disaster in the Philippines, and I wanted to fundraise, and I thought, this is a great excuse to bake. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I told my workmates I was fundraising for the Philippines um, disaster, and I basically brought in, like, lots of baking, and they had to give me money for it, and I gave it to the Red Cross, and... Um, yeah, and then I was uploading all the photos of my baking. I was like, look what I made. And uh, one friend that worked at a 
quite a high place in Wellington, like a really cool company, I can't say which one. Um, she noticed all my baking and um, I started experimenting with my baking. I, you know, I was putting like the Oreo, have you guys seen the Inception cookies? It's like the Oreo inside the cookie. And I was doing stuff like that, like I loved hiding things and stuff. And so I started doing a lot of that stuff and she was like, hey, my company would really love your baking. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's nice. And um, this was like outside mini bar as well while we were having this conversation, so I didn't think she was serious. Um, and then the next day she was like, hey, you know that thing we talked about, um, I've told my coordinators and they want you to come in and bring some baking in. I was like, oh, awesome. And so I did and it went really well and they're like, they want you to come back for us twice a week. And I was like, oh, cool. And they're like, do you have your GST number and everything for your company? And I was like, I don't have a company. <laughs> and um, so we decided, okay, let's make this legit. And um, I came up with this company name called, um, and this is no offense to anyone that has this company name because I actually found someone that did. Um, and I, made, I wanted to call it um, Cake My Day. Um, <laughs> And so I had a business mentor and I told him, this is my business idea and my company name. He goes, no. And he was like, he was like go back to the drawing board um, and remember how you got into baking. And that's all he gave me. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with that? And then so um, me and my boyfriend were on a road trip and um, we started going, oh, okay, let's come up with a company name. And he was actually the one that came up with Sweet Release um, purely because obviously it was... Um, I was using it as my therapy to my illness and also it had the you know, kiwi thing with sweet as and sweet release kind of sounded a bit cheeky as well so we thought that was really cool um, and then we got home and I wanted to um, register the company and get the website and all that stuff and I found out that sweet release was taken by like a porn site <laughs> and so I was like um, I'm not going to use this and so I had to add in cakes and treats at the end of it and I hate giving out my email address because they're like why is it so long and like being a business owner you fill out lots of forms and I, it's just so long to like write it all and everyone always makes a joke about how long it is and I'm like don't google sweetrelease.com like just don't go there and um, so yeah and basically long story short I went part-time to IT part-time baking eventually got the opportunity to open my own store and um, we're celebrating our two-year anniversary in um, August yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so for me, my reboot was a bit of a dick, um, but, you know, like for me, because I still think in IT terms as well in my head, um, you know, when you do a forced reboot and it, make, it says, you know, recommended run diagnostics and run repairs, I always clicked no on that, and um, <laughs> I kind of felt like, you know, I finally took time, well, it made me take time to be diagnosed to have me repaired. And now I feel like an almost brand new computer. Yeah, that's my reboot story. Yeah. Thank you. Chris Bartley, keep clapping. <laughs> Great. Um, that was fantastic, thank you so much. Um, up until the, um, and including the bedridden stuff, it really sort of just sounded like you were on cocaine. But like, I like it sometimes because like the, the hormones and stuff made me feel like I was really drugged up and I was on drugs with the heart meds and um, yeah, <laughs> I won't say anything more else about other drugs. 
Okay, Chris brought some baking in, but just for us, and is damn good. You should go to the shop. Okay, are you ready for your next uh, speaker of the evening? Yes. Please welcome Widamu Tuiwai. Right. Yeah, so uh, my one is, takes me back to when I was six. This is my reboot story. Um, where I had my first crush um, on a girl. Um, her name was Vanessa. Um, and I had a crush on her for about four years. Um, she was uh, about a year younger than me. Um, and I could never figure out exactly why I had a crush on her or why I felt the way I, I did about her as opposed to all the other girls uh, around me at the time. Um, now, this may be before some of you guys, maybe a lot. The, uh, when we were younger, we used to play like, um, um, you know, doctors and nurses and mums and dads, that kind of thing. Um, but whenever we got to play mums and dads, I never got to be the dad or the mum. I always had to be either the uncle that used to come over and visit, um, or if it was a rich family, I was the butler. Woo. <laughs> Yay me. Um, but I always made sure I, I was playing with Vanessa. Uh, and the same thing with um, doctors and nurses. You know, I was never the doctor or the nurse. I was always, apparently, we need a security guard here at the hospital. You give me that. <laughs> Yay. Um, but as long as Vanessa was playing, it, it didn't bother me, right? Um, so the closest... Uh, Intimately, I ever got with Vanessa was we're uh, at a water slide, and she said, um, "Hey, Woody, you want to join me on the water slide?" And I'm like, "Yes," you know. And so we're going down the water slide, and I, it was a really nice feeling. Like, yeah, this is the first step to getting the, the actual courage to actually say something of some romantic nature to her, and this is really nice. And then I thought, nothing can spoil this. Uh, most guys have this, unfortunately, cannot be controlled down here. And you just feel the, 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 the automatic surge, like, no! And then before she could feel anything, I just pushed her away before I got down to the bottom. By that point, I'd been, hello, and I just stayed in the water like, thanks, Vanessa. I'll see you back up there. And that was the closest I ever got to saying that, and to that start, I still didn't even actually told her how I felt. Although I did see her a couple of years back, she's married and doing really, really well, and told her that, you know, when I had this crush on you, it's like, oh, don't be so stupid. Um, and then like, yeah, oh yeah, hey, me, whoa, woo. Um, so that's what the, my first experience of what I thought was love, until I went to intermediate, and then, whew, puberty kicked in, hello. You know, then it kind of reevaluated what I thought these feelings were. Um, so all oh, these were girls coming by, left, right, and said, oh, this is lovely, this is great. Um, but I didn't actually uh, have a girlfriend at the stage by the time intermediate. It wasn't until I got left high school, by this point, it wasn't until I left high school and started my first job at uh, Eagle Boy's Pizzas um, in Hastings. I know, it was a good time in my life, that's for sure. A lot of deliveries made. <laughs> Not like that either. <laughs> I wish. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I loved the black shorts and the pink t-shirt. Oh, ladies loved it. Straight up to the door. Your pizza is here. I don't have change for 20, I'm sorry. But the, and then, yeah, so it wasn't until I started Eagle Boys where I met this lovely girl called Liz. 
she was probably my first, I can actually say my first love. I just fell in love with her. Um, cut a long story short, because we don't want to get into that. Basically, we got to the point where, okay, we were about to get freaky dicky. Uh, and I thought I was going to lose my virginity. It's like, yeah, woo, I can cash in my card. Um, but then it didn't even get to that point because we just started talking and talking and talking. Kind of long story short, even long, another long story short, was she wasn't the type of girl to settle down. She was a free spirit, as she put it. Um, I wanted to have a girlfriend, like, yeah, let's have a girlfriend. Said, no, no, I'm not like that. And she started explaining more about her, 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 her love life or her life with um, other partners. And it just screwed my head because I've grown up with rom-com movies and cartoons and TV shows that say, you know, when you meet the girl, she'll be the one. You guys will end up together. Roll credits. Um, it wasn't like that uh, with Liz. And she put me straight. And well, thank you for that. Um, and then it wasn't until another two years later where A, I met my first girlfriend, and B, where I lost my virginity. Now, obviously, everyone's got different virginity stories, but she was the best girlfriend to have in that situation. Like, actually just going up to her and asking, asking her out, you know, do you want to go out? I was, my friend said I was trembling so hard um, that she was standing there just looking at me and going, oh, you poor little thing. But she let me finish what I wanted to say. <laughs> How adorable. And then um, even as we were kissing, I was still trembling. Uh, and then she, she went away and I was just still standing there going, I, I've, 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 got a, I've, got a, I've got a girlfriend. <laughs> so, um, and the next nine months were amazing and uh, she really looked after me and she got me to understand more about what makes relationship work, what doesn't work. Um, she sadly, we broke up um, and she went to uni in Palmerston North um, while I remained in Hastings. Um, and a couple of years later, I met someone else uh, who I met through a uh, warehouse um, and... Yeah, we got together, uh, it was lovely, it was great, it was magical. Um, we were together for a year and then we got engaged. Um, we both thought at the time that this is it, you're the one, I'm your one, sweet, let's do this. Um, did the whole uh, ask to stepdad, um, would it be okay if I ask your stepdaughter for, for a hand in marriage? Uh, here's the milk you wanted, uh, by the way. And he just gave me the stun look and he's like, of course. Let's do this. Uh, it was a happy day. The families came over. We talked. We laughed. We played. It was, it was great. And then it wasn't until nine months later, uh, after the engagement, that we sat down and had this talk about breaking up. We still don't know why we broke up. I mean, she may have a version. I may have a version. Like every story, there's two sides, three sides. There's her side, my side, and the truth. Uh, the truth is probably there somewhere, and we may not want, don't want to see that. When it came to breaking up, I was living with her at the time, so when we did break up, there was still like two weeks of me living there, and that was, I can only describe that feeling to when you lose someone close to you in, in the family when they die, um, and I compare it to my grandfather when he passed away. I wasn't that close per se, but when we went to the funeral, 
and just feeling all the people who were hurt by his loss. Then it hit me then, and then I felt really sad. And obviously, 11 years later, when we broke up, that feeling, it was the only way I can compare it. I mean, I can't say one's worse than the other or anything like that, but it was the closest feeling of being so uh, alone. Um, and I did everything in my power to like do anything with her just to be that close. But as the months went on, I was like, this is not healthy. You know, like Chris said, she, she found her way, which was through baking. My way was through leaving uh, Hastings, period. <laughs> I had to. It was just not healthy for me. Um, so I had a decision to make, um, like Chris. I either had to, I could move to Melbourne, uh, where I had a job, I didn't he have a place to stay, or I could move to Wellington, where I didn't have a job, but I did have a place to stay. Um, and it was the most spontaneous thing that I've ever done that I'm the most proud of. Because since moving to Wellington, whew, man, I've loved just as much as I have previously. I've lied <laughs> just as much, uh, lost and lived and all the other L's that are out there. Um, but just being in Wellington really has rebooted every facet of my life since. Um, it may not be for the better. Uh, there have been some bad times, like life, but most of it, majority of it has been really, really good. Uh, so as much as I really wanted to talk about the reboot cartoon, I chose the story instead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Where to move? How are we doing for Pokemon? You got one? Okay. Can we have a look? Holy sh... Can you take a picture? Uh, Maybe, but I would like to see that picture. Okay, are you ready for your third speaker for the evening? Yay! Okay, welcome Matt Powell. It's 4.30 on a cold, clear morning almost six years ago. I'm woken by the loudest sound I've ever heard. My girlfriend pulls me into the bedroom doorway where she passes out in my arms. Once she's come to and we've found the cats and the shaking stopped and we've surveyed the damage, we can't think of anything else to do, so we kind of go back to sleep. It's the first Saturday in spring. Things got better remarkably quickly. Within a day, we had power. Within a week, we'd stopped having to shit in a hole that I'd dug in a corner of the back garden. Within a month, we were talking about the new normal and how it could have been so much worse. And five months later, it got so much worse. I like to think of myself at the time as a, a loyal Cantabrian, not in a sporting sense, but in the sense that I knew where I was and I knew where I wanted to be. I'd written a play about how you didn't need to leave the city where you were born to finish growing up. And as my friends left one by one for Wellington, Auckland, Melbourne, the UK, Omaru, <laughs> I stayed and I rolled up my sleeves and I expected things. The theatre where I performed regularly was in the middle of town, and so we had to improvise in a completely different sense. We held our late night improv shows in a tent in the Students' Association car park, lit by industrial gas heaters and mic'd against the sound of wind on canvas. And we still sold out. It felt like while other people were clearing rubble and shoveling liquefaction, we were starting the cultural rebuild of the city, 
and we were sure that we were accruing a kind of karmic debt that the spirit of Canterbury would repay in time. Didn't quite work out like that. Chain link fences and orange road cones went up all over the place. And instead of new possibilities and new opportunities, we just had a lot of new places we couldn't go. Around and between the fences, a kind of disaster safari sprang up as tourists on foot or in special buses craned their necks and angled their lenses to capture that one perfect poignant moment of our ruin. Some people from Wellington made a mini-series about the disaster, featuring the very best talent from Auckland and across the world. Some local actors that I knew uh, who had lost homes and loved ones in the disaster even got roles as nurses and skinheads and looters. And people all over the country agreed that the production had really captured our story, presumably. There were movements to rebuild the cathedral to its former glory, but that never really sat well with me. It felt like rebuilding the old city would be an attempt to pretend that nothing had ever happened. We needed new things that acknowledged the change. And as much as the cathedral had been a symbol of Christchurch before, I remembered standing at the end of Worcester Boulevard and staring at the cloud of pulverised masonry in the square. And the cathedral was a symbol of something different now. In the middle of everything, my relationship fell apart. And so did the house where my parents had lived for 35 years and raised four children. The day before the government took possession, I was standing in the dining room looking at a pile of stuff that mum hadn't quite managed to sort through and directing my sisters. You distract mum in the other room and you grab Jason and get all the stuff onto the trailer and just take it to the dump. The main thing I did that day was shoveling soil in the rain so that my parents could rebuild their garden boxes on the other side of town. And I think I understand why that was so important, but I don't think it was for any of the reasons that we thought at the time. I think it was just a task with a beginning and an end. And it was a task that was completely free of emotion. It was something that we could make sense of. Change was happening all around me, and I hated it. I'd made the right choice. I'd chosen the stability and security of the city I called home, and I'd chosen hard work and sacrifice instead of escape, and it just wasn't fair that aftershocks kept happening, and my girlfriend and I argued all the time, and buildings kept getting knocked over, and my route to work changed every couple of weeks as new roads were closed for repair. I was tired, and I was anxious, and I was scared, and I was sad, and I was deeply unhappy. That was a big thing for me, the idea that I ought at least to be happy with myself. I'd received these messages all my life about being happy, about how I needed to accept myself and everything would be fine. I was kicked out of church once in my early 20s because I looked unhappy and it was upsetting certain members of the congregation. And could I please just come back again when I'd learned to be happy? <laughs> and this felt like that all over again. And then slowly I realised that a lot of the things that I was unhappy with were choices that I'd made and I could make new ones. I could get a new job. I could move on from that relationship. I could change cities if I decided to. I don't know if you've ever done something that you swore you would never do. But it turns out that sometimes it's quite easy. I found a job in Wellington. I found a room that I could stay in for a couple of months while I got my feet. And so I packed what I could into the back of my little yellow Impreza and I divided the rest of my stuff between a storage locker and the vinnies across the road from my flat. And a year ago this coming Sunday, my brother and my cat and I 
got in the car and drove from Christchurch up to Picton, across on the ferry, and down into Ara Valley. That night, sleeping on my best friend's couch in Mount Vic, I felt as happy as I'd ever been. But of course, after any change, things settle. And as much as I loved my new home, and I was excited and inspired by the new opportunities it afforded me, one big change didn't fix everything the other big change had broken. As well as missing my family and my friends, I missed things about Christchurch that had been lost in the quake anyway. There's a particular route up into the Port Hills and down into Sumner that I used to drive alone at night with the stereo up way too loud. And that road is closed forever now, but I miss it. Like I miss the theatre where I saw improv for the first time. And I miss the karaoke bar with the sticky books and the dodgy mic cables and the way that girl looked at me that time when I sang that song. And I miss the restaurant where I had my first grown-up date. And I miss Shag Rock being upright instead of half a pile of stones on the beach like a tree struck by lightning. And fuck it, I do miss the cathedral in all its oppressive neo-Gothic majesty where the angels on the war memorial still stand with swords drawn like the angel in the story that guards the gate gates of Eden against two curious kids who just didn't know how to be happy with what they had and were told they were no longer welcome. After a year, I'm still not sure how to feel about leaving Christchurch. A part of me began to miss it even before I left. And a part of me, the part that will fly down in three weeks to see my friends and my family and meet my new niece or nephew, misses it for a different reason. Still longing to be part of that rebirth, that reawakening, that reboot. But I'm coming to realise that, even here, I can be. The rumbling that started deep in the earth also shook something in me. Things came bubbling to the surface that needed to be shoveled away to clear a foundation for something new. I feel like I'm rebuilding myself. Not all at once, but in little pieces, over and over again. Not to recreate what used to be there, but to embrace what could be. It's a cold, clear morning and it feels like spring. Matt Powell. Yeah. Our last speaker for this evening is Laurie Lee. I've had um, three crashes in my life, and they've gone something like this. I'm about eight. There's a buff-colored cocker spaniel, a pup of my grandmother's dog. I name her Buffy. She's beautiful, and we're best friends. Montage. I'm riding my pink bicycle, and Buffy's chasing me around the yard. Uh, there was actually a VHS of this, but my mom recorded her soap operas over it. <laughs> Me brushing Buffy's hair. Me, Buffy running down the gravel driveway to meet me off the school bus. Sometime shortly after, she runs down our driveway, out into the busy street. Bang, a car breaks her back. I never have another dog until I'm 23. It's 4 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. My phone rings, and it's Annie, my partner. She tells me she's been at the Humane Society, and there's a dog. She wants to adopt it, and I need to meet it. The Nashville Humane Society is all concrete and cages, puppy prison, and I'm put in this cage with this little white pup, brown ears, brown spots, body of a miniature greyhound. I'm told her name is Lupe, and her mother's name is Rosa. They found two of them running wild. 
The humane workers tell me the dogs were abused and abandoned. There was a litter of puppies and Lupe was the runt. The thing about runts is, one, the other pups get bigger and leave their moms. Runts just stick around with their mom. This is why Lupe's still with Rosa when she's found. And two, runts don't actually know they're runts. I've heard that dogs can only see in black and white, so I don't know if they can judge sizes. Lupe cowers in a corner of the cage and growls at me menacingly. <clears throat> you you want to get this dog? Yeah, that's the dog I want. It's small and we can take it on planes and stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, when you're in love, uh, you tend to say okay to the most outrageous requests. So a week later, after shots and neutering, sorry about that, Lupe, um, Humane Society rules, I'm picking up Lupe. I didn't really know at the time what one did with dogs, and to be honest, I was a little bit scared of Lupe. We hadn't really uh, hit it off. So I put Lupe um, in a milk crate, one of those plastic square interlocking boxes, and I put her in the passenger seat of my little black 2002 door Honda Civic EX Coupe, and off we went. Bang. I had been distracted for a moment when a van that was in front of me just completely put on its brakes, and so out of nowhere, I plowed right into the back of it. A tiny mouse lodging itself in the anus of a huge elephant is the best um, analogy I can give for that. Um, when I came to, I was actually being dragged by a stranger um, from the smoking car. My airbags had deployed. Uh, prior to this, I had imagined airbags as like nice, fluffy pillows that like cradle your face in the event of an accident. Airbags are made of woven, ni woven nylon fabric that explodes at 1 20th of a second through a pyrotechnic process. Um, the bags are covered in a heat shield coating to protect the fabric from scorching. The human face, however, is not. Um, now I'm at A&E and burn treatment is being applied to my face, which had been partially ripped off from the airbag. Honda has since recalled these airbags, which as recently as April of this year killed a teenager. Airbags can kill people. Airbags can kill dogs. When I come to from the smoke, I hear whimpering. I learned that day that milk crates are incredibly tough. Probably all the calcium, building strong bones or whatever. Lupe is completely fine. The milk crate, strapped in the passenger seat, has sheltered her safely. After that crash, Lupe and I become inseparable. I had to spend weeks in bed on painkillers, and the dog nestled right in beside me in bed. No more growling, only love grunts. When I was finally up and walking properly again, I noticed Lupe was not. I took her to the vet, and after multiple scans and sending things off to like proper university veterinarian hospitals, I was informed that Lupe had a rare genetic disease. She was not simply the runt, but she had a bone deformity, kind of a dwarfism in dogs. The vet hung her head as she told me Lupe would probably only live a year, maybe less. When you're in love, you tend to say okay to things. I took that dog home anyway. Montage. Lupe dressed as Spuds McKenzie. That's a fictional dog character created for use in an extensive advertising campaign marketing Bud Light beer in the late 
80s. Um, me with an off-shoulder gray sweatshirt dressed as Alex from Flashdance. It's my 25th 80s-themed birthday party. Lupe is the little spoon when we sleep each night. Lupe and I riding a jet ski on a lake in Tennessee. Lupe and I eating buttery grits right out of the pan. Lupe and I walking in Central Park while Lupe chases squirrels up trees. Lupe taking a big shit on the carpet every time I leave for work. Lupe hanging out and sleeping on all the couches of all the sets of all the shows I direct. Lupe and all the family holiday photos. Lupe and I spend the entire East Coast of the United States, Georgia, Tennessee, Illinois, New York, North Carolina. Lupe lived to be some undeterminable age that was well over 10. That's 70 plus in dog years. Lupe eventually went to live with my mom when I moved to New Zealand because of the crazy New Zealand rabies free importing animals regulations. She went blind in old age. She lost her leg, but I like to think she became a pirate dog. My family couldn't bear to tell me when she finally got put down. She's buried in my mom's backyard. People always say I look like my mom, especially in this one photo of her where she's holding her dog. It looks like a filtered Instagram, but it's an original 70s Kodak. She's younger, and she's holding her miniature Dachshund named Rusty. Bang. The worst crash I've ever had happened two days after Christmas this year. It didn't involve a car. I wasn't moving. I wasn't going anywhere. I was actually standing squarely still, unexpected. My mom at 63 died. Montage. Mom and I celebrating New Year's by watching a cheesy movie like the Hayley Mills Parent Trap on AMC. Mom coming to visit me in New Zealand, pointing to all the road signs, reading them aloud like I can't see them. <laughs> Mom and I at my sister's wedding. Mom at my wedding. Mom meeting her grandkids and giving them all this stuff she's been buying and saving for like the past 10 years. Unlike Lupe, this montage never happened. It's never going to happen. So I'm rebooting again. Have you ever had the impossible situation of your computer crashing and realizing you need the computer to tell you how to reboot? But it's inaccessible. It's like we become helplessly lost when this thing we rely on to help us fix the things in our lives becomes the thing we need to fix. I feel that way about my mom, like this devastating thing has happened and the one person I desperately need to talk to about it isn't there. The thing is, I don't think people are computers. We don't actually reboot. If we crash, there's no starting over, not completely. Every new beginning carries the old beginning. My mom had a dog when she died. He's three. He's also a miniature Dachshund named Dooley. We belong to each other now. He can stand on his hind legs like a meerkat. When I'm with him, I think about Buffy and Lupe and my mom, and especially about the photo of her and Rusty. I think about time not really starting or stopping, just circling. I think about other crashes coming and me not really knowing how to reboot, but also maybe knowing that we don't reboot. Nothing is fresh, and I'm not really sure I want it to be. I think about all the times I've said okay out of love and wonder if I'm going to be okay this time. I'm not sure I have a choice. Some things we don't choose, like dogs in a shelter, they choose us. Maybe life chooses our crashes. I also think about damage from crashes and things not really dying, but maybe things living on in some sort of new space that's fashioned out of love that's been given to us.
Thank you, Laurie. Okay, so once again, thanks to everyone you've seen this evening. Widamu, Turuwai. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Bentley. Matt Powell. Laurie Lee. The water cooler is here every month. Thank you to Ollie here on the desk, and uh, have a good evening. Good night.